Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Mick O'Callaghan. Five years ago, Readings' own Sean O'Byrne, author of A Couple of Things Before the End, interviewed the writer George Saunders following the release of his Booker Prize-winning novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. In today's episode, O'Byrne once again interviews Saunders, this time in the lead-up to Saunders' new short story collection, Liberation Day. It is Saunders' first collection since 2014's 10th of December, and features four stories that have never been published before. Here's Sean. Well, hello everyone. This is Sean O'Byrne for the Readings Podcast, talking today with George Saunders, author of several books, including the collections of short stories Civil Warland in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, In Persuasion Nation, and The 10th of December, a book of essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone, a novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, and now this new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. So hello, George, and welcome. Hello, thank you. That guy never stops writing you're talking about. Geesh, why doesn't he live a little? (laughs) (laughs) So, George, the experience of reading this book was seeing you doing things you've done before in, in the short story collections as well, as skillfully, and then doing what seemed to be really new things, finding new techniques, uh, new methods to imagine, to try and get to a truth, some truth about how we can stay more alive in the best sense and not have our suffering, the ways we will be humiliated, distort us, kill us in some important way before we're even physically dead. But before we talk about some of the new techniques I, I think you've found to tell the stories, I wanted to ask about um, an older technique, the comic exaggeration. I want to quote something. This is, from the, this is from the new collection. This is from Liberation Day and the story A Thing at Work where a woman's having an affair with a guy called Ed and she breaks it off and Crazy Ed calls at 2am, says he shaved his head, was thinking of quitting Kodak, his job, and moving up to Alaska. And then really quickly, did she want to come? He'd already bought her some top-rated mittens. And <laughs> I love that. And the thing about it is, that's a formulation or a phrase that you were getting really good stand-up. And you've long, since Civil War Land, you've had a faith that you can bring that to literature, that literature could take a lot more comedy than people mostly thought it that could. They, that you for a long time, I guess, thought that it yeah. could. And you've yes. kept faith with that in this new book. Yes. I mean, that was my my big breakthrough if there if if there if I had one, which was to say Oh, look, all your life leaned on comedy in moments of crisis, you know, or, or or celebration or tragedy or, you know, persuasion. So why is it not in your stories? You know, I was kind of a Hemingway acolyte and everything was very somber, you know, even though I didn't feel that way and I wasn't living that way. So that was a big breakthrough that comedy, um, I suppose, you know, I was kind of a working class person. So I think comedy had the twin connotations of pleasure and lowliness, you know, which maybe were related. So <laughs> it was certainly okay to laugh your ass off at Monty Python, but that was yeah. literature in my narrow understanding. So I, I, now I just feel like, yeah, you know, humor is kind of just, it, it comes out of the frank statement of what's happening often. Or in the case that you quoted, I guess it's just something that the conventional representation of that moment wouldn't include, yeah, but could still occur, you know? So yeah. it's just, yeah. So it's sort of like having your eyes a little more wide open, which is the same as saying you're not surrendering to genre. You know, you're not saying, oh, this is a literary short story. Uh, this marriage is in trouble, a very serious moment. You're yeah. saying, well, it's in trouble. Let's see what it is, you know? 
Uh, and then I think there's a second effect. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but the phrase you picked out is a, a beautiful, you know, a great example of this thing, a kind of offhanded inclusion, you know, yeah. uh, you're racing along at speed. I'm helping you make that picture in your mind. And I throw in this thing that just barely fits, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. very, yeah. I mean, Gog this is a Gogolian, Gogol is the guy, the master of this, you know, he'll, he'll. The sudden ridiculous detail. Yes. And it's not, a, it's not necessarily a, if it's a ludicrous, completely ludicrous detail, it doesn't work, but it's the one that normally, yeah, I guess normally the mind would decide not to pick that one up because it sullies the effect. But actually, you know, it, 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 it completes the effect. Uh, if you're being, if we're being really honest, I, I think sometimes of the fact that Chekhov, when he died, the great master, uh, a big crowd of people came to the pier to watch the body come in from, I think, from Yalta. Yeah. And there was another person who had died, and they inadvertently followed that coffin because of it. <laughs> and Chekhov's coffin was in a, a container marked something like raw oysters or something by accident. So his body stayed on the pier, and they followed wow. this, you know, no name general to a different graveyard. Perfect, you know, of course. Ah, oh, I didn't know that story. That's extraordinary. That's a Chekhovian event at Chekhov's own funeral, right? 100%. He would have, well, I don't know if he would have loved it, but I think he would have loved it. Yeah. He would have written yeah. it. He would have written yeah, it. and he would have known, he would have known to place it and then leave it alone, right? Not put too much comment around it. Exactly right. Because as soon as you do that, you, you're, you're kind of insecurely packing it with theme. Yes. You know, who, who yes. needs that? It's yes. just, you know, I, I think there's a word, um, I think I, I want to say wabi-sabi or something like that, but it's, huh? and my understanding is it's like the, the little human flaw in an otherwise perfectly made object yeah. that's there to remind you that a human being was involved. So sometimes I think in this, in this, you know, and so an interesting thing is how, I mean, how those things occur at speed, that's really interesting. Cause uh, you know, and a lot of times um, <clears throat> when I have something like that, when I'm in my sort of very stoic editing mode, I'll think about cutting them out. And, and I often, now I'm smart enough to know, no, that that's, you know, leave that just as it is. Yeah, to bear, bear the bear coming across that joke over and over, right? Because it would be hard to keep having faith in that particular line where you're coming yes. back to it again and again. That you're right. amused again at two p.m. in the afternoon. Yes. Yeah. Right. Or you, or you remember, or you say, "Note to self: You were amused by that last April." So yeah. Leave it, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, the some of one of the facts I thought like there's another story in the collection, Ghoul, where there's so much good exact good. Good exaggeration, good comedy, and one of the one of the effects, which I think has something to do with what you're talking about now, is um the it, it keeps like so in this story there are many jokes, but there's also a lot of really difficult violence going along together. And what's interesting is the jokes um, they don't take away from or soften the violence exactly. It's it actually increases it in some strange way because the the casual and sometimes joking way that the people talk to each other about the really horrific events around them, it what it does is it puts it back in the reader's head to go, yeah, we are frighteningly blase or frighteningly casual about all kinds of violence. There's a yeah. so it's interesting the you would think the humor would reduce just be a reduction of seriousness. And yet it's kind of a friend of seriousness, if that's a way to say it. I, I think that's a beautiful way to say it, yeah. I, and, you know, it's <clears throat> the other thing I noticed there was that the, um, I don't know, I, this, I might be giving myself a pass here, but if, if I saw the violence of that story enacted, I wouldn't like it. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to see that movie. But it's not a movie. It's, it's a, vis, a verbal 
pleasure cruise. You know, I mean, if I say, if I say, um, I boinked that guy right in the head or bonked that guy. I didn't boink him. I bonked him right in the head. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. Now, what does that even mean? You know, what is it? Which part of my hand that I use? If you read that sentence in the story, you don't actually care. You've always bonked him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you had to film it, you'd have to hit him with something specific. So I think there's a little bit of a pass on the violence. But as you say, then the way I'm writing it underscores what we do with language to squirm out of our own micro and macro violences. I think that's really true. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that's really moving though is also that, and I know that this has been in your work for a while, which is thinking hard about necessary reduction of, of comedy, necessary reduction mm -hmm. of comic exaggeration. I heard a, a, a broadcast that you, that you did with um, Michael Silverblatt where you said, look, there was a point where I think I was running at about 80% sometimes and I got really interested in coming down to 60%. Mm. And now I get the sense sometimes here that you've made another reduction in some of the stories down yes. to around 40 where there's still the production of really good jokes, really good like the kind of line we were talking about before, but the again, the, not to go too far against what we were just saying, but the effects of the reduction, I get a sense is something that you're getting more interested in. Yes. I, you know what? That started for me with, and I think I was talking to Michael about that Lincoln in the Bardo book, where at one point, um, the technical needs of the book uh, were that I had to write a bunch of uh, faux monologues that the reader would mistake for actual historical documents, you know, and I went, I tried the other way, which is, okay, if I have to make up things, I'll just be so flamboyant and funny. Well, then you've got a real jarring uh, disconnected. The, the book didn't hold together. So I thought, okay, yeah. so I'm going to define virtuosity as subduing, you know, the normal tendency. And in that book, I, I knew I got it right when I, after a while, couldn't tell which were the real ones, you know, that was yeah. a real, uh, a big step for me because I felt like I'd, you know, gotten where I am such as it is by being a performer, you know, by, by being flamboyantly skillful at blah, blah, blah. This was to just say, speak quietly, you know, yeah. don't say yeah. so much. Uh, because if you say too much, you're going to violate the, your, the, uh, the costume that you're wearing, which is a, a 19th century, you know, so that somehow that, and then it, when it kind of worked, I got a little more confident that maybe I could say something in a quieter register. Yeah. And in this book, it just felt like a really wonderful, um, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll use a baseball metaphor. I mean, but you know, like if a pitcher gets a, a, a curveball. Yeah. That he didn't have before. That's great. Suddenly he's got a expanded repertoire, you know? So uh, in some of those quieter stories, I felt, yeah, let's, let's play with that because wouldn't it be nice to go into the next books with the confidence that that could also work, you know? Yeah. So you're kind of adjusting the voice to the aim. And also the aim is kind of telling you about the voice simultaneously. And not, not to be too, I don't know, explicit about it, but do you, what do you think, do you have a story that you tell yourself about what you're trying to find out? If you reduce comedy, you can show, like comedy gives us both shows and give us, us relief from certain kinds of humiliation. But if you, yes. it strikes me that if you reduce the comedy, you, you're getting really skillful at showing other kinds of humiliation. There's a different, there's a different kind of suffering that can be shown if there yes. aren't any jokes. And it strikes me that must be what, in a way, you're after Yes, I think it is. I would I would probably say it or think of it slightly differently, which is it, it has something to do 
with the value of increased sincerity. Like yeah. in that story, Ghoul, mm. from the beginning, you know that we're sharing a joke. We're, we're, I'm making this guy who lives in a theme park underground and he plays a devil for a living. Ha ha. So yeah. there's a certain irony. Now, I think you can make deep meaning and deep emotion, even with the overlay of irony. So, and I think there are some things you can't get to without that. Okay. But in other cases, I think the reader writer relationship really benefits from a kind of a, um, I guess it's just an earnestness or a kind of, you know, I've heard it described as uh, quotidian reality, meaning, uh, or, or no, can, oh, is that, there's another phrase for it, but um, oh, consensus reality. So, yeah. you know, there's a language that comes when I want to tell you how to drive to the hospital. It's not fancy. It's not highly stylized. It's just a tool, a, a very simple language that, so we're talking about a consensus reality, take a left, go past a pine tree, take a right, you know, whatever. Um, that language, I think, earns you, I, I think it earns you a certain kind of emotional effect that is hard to squirm out of, yeah. you know, yeah. but it's not the, but yes, but when I was younger, I tried to do that and I couldn't do it. It didn't get any emotional effect. So one thing I'm kind of happy about is I'm, as I'm getting older, that register is opening up to me again, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's funny because you're always kind of saying, well, if I do, if I write an over-the-top comedic piece, I get this, but I lose that. Yeah. Yes. And if I write a really uh, calm mm, story in kind of plain language, I get this and I lose that. The, yeah. the beauty of a collection is you can actually do both and just go, yeah, I'm doing both, you know. And this this goes to the things that I think are new here. There's two stories in particular, or maybe three, but the story Sparrow, I was really struck by because it really was like you'd, not to go too far, but you'd introduce like anti George Saunders, like <laughs> yeah, like yeah, anti good antibodies. It was. Oh, I just was struck by how rigorously you called off any comic exaggeration. You it, it struck me that the story was a real attempt to do this, where you start with, listen, here's someone, get this, who's not interested. Here's someone who one who says, if you say to her, uh, "How's your sandwich?" She says, "It's a good sandwich," and. Then let's find out what goes on from there. If nothing particularly interesting is happening, well, what are we left with? And the extra, the thing that was especially moving was if, there, if, if things are kept less interesting, then there's a forgiveness for what is less interesting and those mm. who are less interesting, which I thought was was a really like a new amount opening up. That's a that's a beautiful analysis, and I hadn't thought of that. But thank you. Yeah, that 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 echoed my my experience of working that story. Was I I just had a dream. I dreamed the first four or five lines, oh. and usually when I wake up, I just go back to sleep because it's not you know it's like the <laughs> the hippopotamus election or something. I know that's not so. Um, but in that one, something about them, I, I, I liked them and I felt I could do them. I felt I could do that voice. So I jumped up and went to the kitchen and wrote it. And um, I've been reading Gertrude Stein, which I th think you ah. probably pick up on that a little bit. No, no. I thought that, I thought, I just thought this, because I know that you had, I didn't actually mention this at the start and should have, but um, a swim in a pond in the rain. I know that you've been paying so much attention to Russian short. I thought it must be just a flow of Chekhov, but but no. Well, I think it, I think that that also. I think if you kind of took Chekhov and Gertrude Stein and had a love child, you know, in my mind, yeah. something like that. But you know how sometimes you're writing and you can just do the voice, like like when we were kids and we do comedy stuff. You can just suddenly you can do 
the voice of a Russian or do the voice of a German or of whatever, that voice I could do. And um, somehow, yeah, it's interesting what you say, because I could, I think I just intuitively knew that that voice was going to be enough. It didn't have to have that, you know, in Hollywood, they say a hat on a hat. Yeah. So if, you know, yeah. so if you're, yeah. if you're doing a story that's getting some traction yeah. with a certain pretty normal voice, then you, why would you put the hat on the hat? Just stay in that register. But that story for me also was, um, I was, you know, literally two in the morning in my pajamas sitting there. I can't, my glasses are in the other room. So I'm squinting over the keyboard yeah. and I got to a point where I said, okay, oh, I see where this is going. Okay. Yeah. This, this uninteresting woman is going to have to be humiliated by the world. Cause that's what you do. George, yeah. You know? Yes. Yes. And I was so bored. I, I thought, okay, I'll go to bed then. Cause I'll, I can do that tomorrow. I can do that in my sleep or out of my sleep. And then a little voice said, well, and it might've been Chekhov actually, cause yeah. you know, he does that so beautifully. He'll set yeah. you up and then reverse. And I thought, okay, well, what if, what if it's not the case? Yeah. Can you start, kind of like start steering the ship towards positive harbor? Can you do that? All, you know? Yeah. And then at that point, it became clear to me that the narrator wasn't me after all. It was a sort of a slightly cynical community narrator. Yeah. The we, the third person we. collective. Yeah. Is yeah. that the way to say that? Exactly. Yeah. So, th so then suddenly like, oh, that, okay. So my, I mean, the whole thing now, plot and theme and everything is to pull that boat towards the other island viably, yeah. you know, yeah. viably. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I was up till four in the morning and, you know, got pretty much, I didn't, I, you know, of course revised it for months afterwards, but yeah. the basis of the story was all there. So it, it was interesting to think about having read those Russians so closely yeah. and noticing how much of their energy is in self-contradiction Yes. Once there was a yes. very happy man. This day he was very unhappy. Yes. Huh. Well, and I think what it does is it kind of keeps your eye on the text because you're trying to figure out what does the writer want me to think of this person? And if the writer's saying, I'm not sure yet, yeah, then you're interested. You know, if the writer says, Oh, he's a villain, really terrible villain, and we'll stay that way, you're like, Okay, I'll go, I'll go yeah. play. Because often often enough, and in some of the other stories and in some of the stories of the other collection, the sense that can come across a lot is don't you dare not be interesting. You have to think things through for yourself. And then what was really moving was to see two people where you say, this might be good enough. These people aren't particularly interesting and they're not thinking things through really. Right. And, but right. there's lovely cause you and the we in the story just go, it's, there's like a kind of stop, like a kind of yeah. silence of, well, well maybe. Exactly. And I, I thought after that, I thought, you know, isn't that in a way, isn't that every love affair? I mean, we, yeah, we think from afar. in it, we think, oh, it's my perfection joining your perfection. But then, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's always kind of, co what do they say, <laughs> co-enabling or something, you know? You're, yeah, you're, everyone else is just bemusedly tolerant, yeah? <laughs> More or less. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But that was a fun one because I, you know, I, I the Russians, especially Chekhov, he has a way of, I, I don't think his endings are actually uplifting. But they also don't do that sort of auto darkness that I, you know, I've done it and I think, well, I don't know, I've tried not to do it, but I think it's, it's, it's a first order effect in fiction. Life is shit. We're doomed. No, everybody's got the most cynical uh, intention. Chekhov is really happy to go, no, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. things do turn out badly, but it's not because people are inherently evil. It's because there was a misunderstanding, you know, or something like that, which I. Or I, or I guess allowing the idea of, there's no finished thought I'm really going to be able to bring to this. That is it. That's beautiful. Huh? That's it. Yeah. And, and what a place, you know, when you get to that point 
that's powerful, you know. Yeah. Uh, I always say it's kind of amazing. I just like being reminded that I can do that for a couple of seconds. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. rest outside of a place of judgment, uh, you know. But I, but then, and the, I found this sort of hard, like I know people say confronting too much, but it, it was hard, uh, hard or something. Because well, then I want to go into this story in my house where it, it's, uh, it's a really, it's such an interesting story because it, it, it sets up a situation in which a man wants to buy a house. He makes a, what seems, and you build this into the story, it's just a small mistake. He makes a really small failure of generosity. And then the rest of the story is kind of a machine where he just pays really hard for it. And again, against, a, I think, what's happening, maybe what you could say is happening in Sparrow, there's a kind of drive to say he really didn't do something that he should have done. Right, and right. And there's a, I thought, I thought the word in my head was demand, and that's not fair. There's a request in that story, <laughs> which is, could you imagine a kind of generosity which is more radical than anything we could usually think of including? I, I hope I've made this clear just for people. Um, the man's trying to buy the house. He, he, the person who's going to sell the house makes a really gentle request that he comes and stays in it sometimes, just comes back and visits. And the man who's thinking of buying it just makes the natural enough, just gives the most natural reaction, which is, oh, uh, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah. right? again, he like literally this, just pauses. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is, but this is a hesitation where it's not. It's actually the opposite, right? Because it's not hesitation as this thing which is good and which is protected. Hesitation as a sign of some, like a really deep failure, I think. I, I'm, I think that's exactly the question the story wants you to ask. I, I lean into that moment and I think, well, and I think the story says, he, he says to his realtor, I don't think, I mean, was that unreasonable that I just paused? Because I, it happens in two phases. The guy says, I don't have it here, but the guy says, yeah. uh, maybe I could drop by. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. And then and stay in the guest room. And, you know, I have a feeling that if the guy had had if he could have stopped time and thought about it, he would have said yes, because they were getting along really well. But it was just a little too much. And and I my, in my imagination, all he did is he went, yeah, this that long. And the other guy uh, who was in a difficult spot, he he took it hard, you know, yeah. so I'm not sure, you know, um, but there's something very strong in that story because at that point, or maybe because of that, the house begins to collapse, becomes yeah. a, this phrase filth packed. There's this idea of if you fail to show a pretty, like a radical generosity, you could lose everything you have. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful interpretation. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And, and also that it wouldn't necessarily, I mean, I'll add a grace note. It yeah. wouldn't necessarily be your fault objectively. I don't, I don't really- Why? I understand viscerally why he might hesitate, and that's a high price to pay, you know, for for a little slight faux pas, you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's really that's interesting. That's more frightening, right? So it's yeah, it's so it's not a it's not even an equal judgment against you, really, right? And when is it? You know, when you think about the tragedies that happen and the things that you, I mean, I, I've been thinking. Uh, well, it's actually in another story in. in uh, the mom of bold action, this idea of how yeah. you'll make, you know, they say you make one mistake, you pay for it the rest of your life. That's can literally be true. You know, you, you, um, I remember one time when I was younger, I was, I, I was having an argument with a friend and I was kind of upset and I, I was turning into a gas station and the guy, a guy waved me forward from one of the lanes and I turned and boom, I 
this guy, I hit this guy or this guy hit me. And I just was like, I was so sickened by it because it was stupid. It was just stupid. So I'm sitting on the curb, like just, uh, and this cop comes over and he goes, you all right, sir? I said, yeah, I just, so, I feel so stupid. I feel like I could have killed that guy. He goes, well, sir, that's why they call it an accident, you know? And I think very generous, but I thought, okay, that's, nobody got hurt. But uh, had I killed that guy, that's the end of my life, I think, or not, maybe, hopefully not, but it's a, it's a big turn. And the, the sin was a moment, just the slightest moment of inattention, which I do a hundred times a day because yeah. my mind, my mind was elsewhere. So I, I feel that's part of the, in those two stories, the idea that the, the cost to benefit rate or the, you know, the mistake to punishment ratio in this life is really weird. <laughs> it's really unpredictable. But, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 the other story I wanted to try and talk about was Mother's Day. Um, cause that has a strong and frightening idea in it, I think, or is doing technical things that produce this idea, I think, which is the idea that one way you might not necessarily protect yourself, but I don't know, do the best you can against whatever is going to happen to you is to make a special effort. Uh, I'm going to say this clumsily, not to be you, to give up mm -hmm. your ordinary idea of who you are, um, there's a woman in that story, Alma, and at the end of the story, there's a pretty extraordinary sequence in which she dies and gets the chance to go back to work on maybe giving up in the most fundamental way um, her, her self and what it, her, it thinks it wants. Um, the, there were two things about it. One was... The technique, the way you did it technically, where the detail also leaked out after she dies, it's told in the simplest possible language. Was that something you came across right away? Was that something you had to work on? There's, think, a, there's a field and a stump, and then this idea of her hands getting hotter. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was, I mean, I was reading, well, I think I had just finished the Lincoln and the Bardo, I think, or was maybe even still working on it. So that idea that, you know, whatever happens after you die, it's not disconnected from your normal mental phenomenon at first. I, I think maybe later it is, but in the first stage, you're still you, you're still working. And there, and there was, a, I read a book about hospice and in there they talked about how just before death, people would often start speaking metaphorically and poetically using stuff from their life. So a football coach would say, we're on the 10 yard line, yeah. bring yeah. in the reserves you know or, or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I, I think i thought whatever was going on with her it was an experiment to see could we keep doing psychological work after death you know yeah and and and, and I, from tolstoy i said well you can actually master and man he does exactly that or or death of ivan which is a couple of seconds of it so i thought well okay so how how can she do that work really quickly and I think, well you're in this state of of uh coming apart basically right. and your mind is doing crazy metaphorical things but they're not random you know so she's imagining her there's a couple of kids in there she has two kids um the, the hand thing i think it was just the idea that she as in her life she wanted to bring those kids closer but something was keeping them away from her and it was anger or something like that yeah so yeah. that becomes you know so it was a really fun sequence to write i, I felt like um you know sometimes you you get into a place where you stumble onto a little technical device wow. that is so generous with you, you know, like yeah. that, that little sequence, the idea of saying, let me 
let me narrate six seconds of her death at her yeah. death experience yeah. that you're like oh that's rich or like in the mom of bold action there was a sequence of a woman doing a kind of new age mental exercise of imagining sending a an apology beam you know yeah when you stumble on one of those you're like oh this is a perfect marriage of kind of comedy but also the story is going to get to accelerate a little bit because you found a you know a device yeah and the, the pace at which you can move is so striking in the in the mother's day story there's just a beautiful line on its own i think where you just move the action forward 100 years Right. Yeah. right. It's like, Which, you know, the, these things, the, um, in those, de- these near death experiencing, they always talk yeah. about time. Time is not time, you know, time is, oh, it's great. Purgatory so. is both very, very long and in an odd way instantaneous. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's very granular yeah. and very eternal. <laughs> but the, there's a, there's a, there's a, again, there's a, there's a hard nub of an idea in that Mother's Day story. The, the line which I found sort of frightening and interesting was, that whatever was wrong with, with Alma would, 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 quote, be fixed when she stopped being Alma. And right. it reminded me of this passage in, this is going to sound a little, but in Joseph Frank's book about Dostoevsky, he talks about how Dostoevsky thought, really did struggle with this so much, the idea that the ego, the individual human personality was the source of all our suffering and that what we, what we ought to try and do here is voluntarily give up the individual personality. Um, The quote here is, make a sacrifice of the personality out of love. This would be the final accomplishment of the goal of all human existence. And that came back to me. I thought, I wondered, like in a pretty, but I wondered to what extent you believe that. Like you, sometimes you seem to be, not too, too directly, but you seem to be saying, look, can we at least think about it? But other times the story seemed to say, well, you better try it. You better try and yeah, get yeah. rid of this thing. Yeah. No, for me, that that it's, I didn't know that Dostoevsky quote. And it, to me, that's just Buddhism. I mean, you know, right. the idea that uh, rumination and thinking makes the ego or reinforces the ego. You're constant thinking with yourself as object uh, or subject, I guess, subject. Uh, that solidifies the sense that you exist separately from everything else, which physically isn't actually true. I mean, if I if I touch your hand, our molecules are, you know, uh, um, so so the model is you you're born, you start constructing this narrative in which you're the center and you're permanent and you're the star of the show and you're the reason for history. You know, that yeah. Kind of thing. yeah, 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 um, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And that's I I expect that that's Darwinian. I mean, you you wouldn't fight so hard to. reproduce and stay alive if you didn't believe that and so so okay uh but it's out of step with reality you know we we know that 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 self that george is gonna go away you know um uh and we know that it's that actually it's the 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 thinking the 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 thinking that i'm making right now with me at the center of it is it literally doesn't exist anywhere it's just neuron firing being perceived by neuron firing yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I think that the, the, the one thing you hear all the time is the point of life is to reduce the self, re- reduce the ego, reduce the self. Um, but I heard something interesting recently, a Tibetan Lama has said, no, that's not quite right. It's you're, you're trying to make your understanding of the self less delusional. Right. So, anyway, so it's not just production. Yes. Yeah, so you understand it's just a temporary, beautiful illusion that you're playing, you're, you're playing in. Uh, don't be too surprised when it goes away. I mean, oh, but that's where the, the suffering comes in. You know, I can't, I'm, I'm suddenly, um, I'm suddenly bleeding out and like, oh no, Sean, I'm dying. Me, yeah. George, I can't yeah. believe it. Yeah. That suffering comes from 
you know, connection to ego. That's inter- that's that makes sense because the thing I was getting a little stuck on was fiction is so willful. So the idea that you would make a fiction which is about some sort of self-annihilation, I was getting a little stuck with that contradiction. But what you say is, no, no, it actually goes, then it sort of develops into fiction, which is, well, enjoy this thing sort of, but don't mistake it for more of a truth than it is or more of a phenomenon than it could be, right, which is actually a way that's fiction itself, right? Right, exactly. But also I would say too, you know, like for Dostoevsky to say just, surrender the self to love. Mm. I'm like, yeah, nice idea. I got any tips on how to do it? I mean, I think people spend, I I think they spend life, repetitive lifetimes trying to get to that point. So, but then the other thing I stumbled on in the book, didn't realize I had done so. Okay. I think that story makes the case that this woman is madly in love with this guy who cheats on her and it's broken her heart since the time she was 25. And it breaks her heart today when she's 80, whatever she is. And she's dead and it still breaks her heart. And she says, the only thing, she tries a number of different solutions. And mm. the only one that works is you've got to stop wanting him. Yeah. And her thing is, I can't. The way this self is constructed, I can't. And the universe says, well, then, how about you don't be yourself? And I think that also is sort of a neurological thing because she's dying. So she is becoming, I mean, Yes. I hope she's being shot out into the eternal bliss, you know, but um, so that was, I, I thought that I left that story thinking that's a pretty good Buddhist story, you know, then I wrote this Elliot Spencer yes, in which, you know, a guy's self is taken away from him by a kind of a brain scrape, you know, sci-fi thing. Yeah. Um, and at the end, he wants nothing more with more convincingly than his self. He wants his memory yeah. of his mom. You know, he wants his memory of childhood sledding. So right. I thought in a way the book sort of says, yes, definitely divest yourself of yourself. Good luck with that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've, you know, yeah. Yeah. And this, the, go back, going back to this Russian idea that you just place the opposites alongside each other. Right. Yeah. Cause that's where we live. You know, we live in that territory where I can uh, have a bad day and go, you know, the problem with that was you were, your ego got out of control or your anxiety whatever you your constructed self was a big pain in the ass today why don't you not do that and i'm like well i don't know why i just can't help it you know and then the next day will come along and i'm having so much fun because my book is out my yeah. book my book is out yes so that's where we live you know <laughs> and i and i do but i do believe i i do believe that there are people and there and there the possibility exists that you could get into a more proper relationship with the self and then it would all be kind of beautiful. I think that's what, you know, the, uh, I think that's what the goal of a lot of spiritual traditions is, is to have a, a sane relationship to this phenomenon called self. So it doesn't fool you at the end or on the way, you know, but yeah, good, yeah. again, good luck with that. Cause that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. But no, no, but, but at least, at least really offering some relief from just how hard you'll try and wear this thing, just how hard you'll try and I don't know, have it instead of anything else, instead of anything. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And it's a very itchy suit of clothing to wear, you know, the self. It, it, it's always causing trouble. Do you, this is a sort of a clumsy way to say it. Do you think fiction is about this in, in a really important way all the time to both sell it, like intensify self, but also offer ways that you could get relief from it? Well, in one, in one way, I think it is, which is that, uh, you know, the, the sort of old fashioned thing, which is you temporarily get lifted out of yourself and get placed into somebody else's consciousness. And of course, that consciousness is actually. Right the reader character or the writer character amalgam, you know, but I think just that little move where you uh, are briefly less yourself, you know, is a, is just a reminder that that self is temporary maybe, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and writing doing the same, right? Writing, you literally do leave yourself in a pretty important way to be somebody else, I guess. You do. And also, you know, I think when I'm doing it, I leave myself in that sense, but also through concentration on the individual lines, uh, you, I, I can't do that editing concentration while ruminating. Those two things don't yeah. coexist. Yeah. So that means that if I'm writing pre with good concentration for two or three hours, I'm not ruminating for two or three hours, which I think means I'm not reconstructing the self during that time, theoretically. You know. Now, of course, I'm also sometimes thinking, oh, this would be great in a New Yorker. <laughs> so that's not, yeah. Yeah. you know, that's not, that's not yeah. non-ruminating. But. Yeah, but no, that's interesting. But you're letting something happen to you more than trying to make something happen, I guess. Yes. Yes. You're, um, I, I find it, it's mostly just reacting to what I've already done yeah. with a sort of trying to be honest about reading the text, reacting to it. Um, so in that, I think in that way, it's not so different from playing a sport or rock climbing or maybe playing music where your attention is just, instead of being inward and ruminative, the attention is outward and I guess evaluative, uh, which I think is just a, enough of a, a neurobiological shift uh, to change the way you feel afterward. I want to say to anybody listening to this that this book is um, uh, is the best of the George Saunders that you know, and it does things that you just wouldn't necessarily think of as a George Saunders uh, story. But um, and this is to ask this sort of this is a strange thing, but do you have you come out of this book sort of feeling yourself pointed towards anything? Um, like thinking about technique, you know how sometimes you could finish yeah. something and you could think, all right, I, I get a sense of what could be something sort of arrives in front of you. This yes, is I know that feeling exactly. And I think the answer is not yet. I, uh -huh. I, um, I, it's I, so I interesting what that this from the Bardo and from the Russian book to, to really something that really did follow on so directly from 10th of December. You really went back to work on problems that you had set for yourself. Yes, yeah. I think the self subconscious kind of works that way. It sort of waits like, okay, what year is it? You know, we'll, we'll go back to, it picks up where it left off. But I, I think um, I am, I'm getting the first inklings of um, impatience to start writing again. Uh, you know, it's, it reminds me, you, re, you write a book, you reread it, and then you want to push off from it a little bit somehow. And I never really know how until I start again. You know, I, there's a, but it's, but as you're hinting, it's very verbal. There's a verbal thing. I want to do uh, a, a voice. I don't know yet, but as of right now, I'm, I'm uh, getting ready to go on tour and I'm just sort of like treasuring it up in my heart. Like, okay, I hope this well will fill while I'm gone. And then I'll come back in January and get back to something. Who knows what? Uh, um, Liberation Days published in Australia by Bloomsbury. George, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. And can I say this? You are a phenomenal interviewer. I have loved this. This went by in like two minutes. I wish you could talk for another three hours. I'm learning so much and, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you for this book, George. It was, um, it was really, this is going to sound dumb, but it's sort of, it was really moving because I know there's been so much fuss and, you know, Bardo and big prizes and stuff. Um, anyone who's like reading or writing, it's a sign that you just, you go, you stay, stay at home in a way and you just keep working on whatever was in front of you. Um, there's yes. something. Thank there's you. Something. I appreciate that very much. And I, 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 I try to do that for sure, because everything else is insanity. But, it, but if you're home working, you know, then, then it's good. <laughs> you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. 
The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respect to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.